Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning. We're glad you're here. I extend a special welcome to those of you visiting with us this morning. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there is a spark of the divine in every person. It is in the spirit of that heritage that I say, let us greet the holy in our midst by turning to the person to your right and left and welcoming them here this morning. Please say with me the words by which we light our chalice, the symbol of our faith. In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Our call to worship this morning is by Paul Robeson. I shall take my voice wherever there are those who want to hear the melody of freedom or the words that might inspire hope and courage in the face of despair and fear. My weapons are peaceful, for it is only by peace that peace can be obtained. The song of freedom must prevail. Many people wonder about Unitarian Universalists. If we do not have a creed, what is it that holds us together? If we have members with roots and practices in all the major world religions, yet still calling ourselves Unitarian Universalists, what is at the center of our faith? That is a lively conversation, and mostly we say it is beloved community and learning how to practice being loving and receiving love with one another. The other thing that holds this particular congregation together is its mission, which has all of that in it and more. We say it together every Sunday. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. The time in our service when we quiet down, when we breathe, deeply into that place in our heart where we are most who we are. It is in this quiet place that we might speak to God as we understand God or listen to our inner wisdom or just follow our breath in and out as it gives us life. We search for stillness. Stillness teaches clarity. We search for compassion so that we might talk instead of shooting. Many times we don't know what to do. Sitting in the stillness is better than flailing around in ignorance. Let us enter the silence together. You are invited to light candles of joy and sorrow, hope and memory. This is the year that is the 100th anniversary of World War I. 
I thought it would be good to do some reading and research and tell you what I found out about it. Most of you know more than I. But as Archibald McLeish's poem says, I, I'm struggling to find meaning in the deaths of the young soldiers, both in that war and all the ones since. What was happening in Europe in the early 1900s was that life was getting better for most people. Electricity was becoming more widespread. The automobile was being used by more people. Folks were mobile. Revolution does not ever happen when people are at their lowest. It is when things start getting better that revolution happens. One man wrote who he was a peasant from the countryside. He decided to go on the train to St. Petersburg and take a look at the Tsar, Tsar Nicholas. He wrote afterwards that when he finally came face to face with the great ruler of Russia, he said, the czar that was in my mind was full of the glory of God, the glory of Russia, the wisdom of the ages, the strength of the whole country. The man I saw was an ordinary little fellow on ordinary little legs. Once you find out, and I think probably most of us remember the moment when we realized that everything was being run by people just about like us, and that there was no one smarter or better qualified or wiser in power. This is why um, a conspiracy theory has a lot of appeal, because at least someone is in charge. At least someone has a plan. And if you stop being able to believe in that, when you realize, for me it happened the first year that I was older than the president, I thought, oh my gosh, We're the grown-ups. We're the ones that are running things. Oh. It happened for this peasant, and it happened for many people as they began to see, well, why is this person a lord and that person a lady, and why am I the chambermaid, and why do I have to stay here? Why am I fated to be in my position in society? I don't have to stay in my position. Maybe I can move. That created an enormous tension as the tectonic plates of the culture began to grind and have some motion. Because the way things were had felt like it was written in stone. It was not only uh, ignorant to question it, it was uh, unpatriotic and and uh, sacrilegious. 
the taboos against questioning the position in society were enormous. And yet people started. Most of the heads of the big states in Europe were cousins. They were related to Queen Victoria. Her grandson was Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany. His cousin was Tsar Nicholas of Russia. They called each other Willie and Nikki. Kaiser Wilhelm is one of the major players in World War I, as you know. And he had some issues, as we would say today. He was the grandson of Queen Victoria and used to go um, to her home on the Isle of Wight in the summertime. And those were some of the happiest memories of his life, he would say. He was born, um, when he was born, they used forceps to pull him out. And his left arm was wrenched out of the socket and never got put back right. So he had a pretty useless left arm. In a family, in a culture where physical perfection was highly valued. And so his family um, advocated uh, that he suffer to try to make this right, that he learn how to ride a horse even though his balance was uh, compromised because of his arm, that he learned how to hold the reins in his right hand and hold on with his knees. And um, they didn't really start slowly and teach him gradually. They did that old uh, uh, technique in some families of just letting you fall off the horse really hard over and over until you decide that you'd rather squeeze with your knees than fall off again. Um, my family, as I've told you, has a lot of German blood, which is why, you know, when we would say we would, we're sick, my dad would say, do you need to go to the hospital? No. Well, then you're fine. So his family was somewhat like that, and he was fine. He just had to fall off the horse till he could get on it, and he suffered greatly, and he felt very self-conscious about the arm. He admired his grandmother's navy very much. Um, it is not a a childhood desire of most of us to have a navy like our grandmothers, but it was for Wilhelm. Um, as he got older and older, his grandmother began to feel that he was a bully and she didn't like him very much, and she was very unhappy when he started to build a navy like hers. Germany was only newly a nation. It had been city-states and warring amongst itself and the uh, for for many, many, many years. So it was depleted and uh, only beginning to build itself and think of itself as Germany. And um, it was very proud of its new nationness, and it wanted to be a player on the world stage like, it, like its cousins were players. Um, it wanted colonies, and it wanted to be uh, an imperial power like Great Britain and like France and even Holland, for goodness sake, had colonies. Germany didn't have any colonies, and uh, that was uh, something that they felt very deeply. And so there was tension building up there in Germany. This is a, this is a map of Europe right here. I don't know if you could tell. 
Everybody was reading Nietzsche. The cities were the great melting pot, Nietzsche said. And in order for growth to happen, the cities must explode. Okay. When everybody starts believing something, it has a tremendous momentum. There were Serbian generals who wanted change in Serbia. They were part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire down here, Germany, Austro-Hungarian Empire, Russia over here, France over here, Great Britain. Um, There was trouble in the Balkans, in Bosnia. The Bosnian Serb, um, last name of Princip, Gavrilo Princip, he was a small man and had been rejected from the Serbian army because of his size. He was an anarchist. There were lots of anarchists back then. They wanted change, and they did not think that they had the power, because they didn't. They didn't have the power to work within the systems that were there. And it's when people feel powerless that they start breaking stuff. And so the anarchists felt that in order to change things, you had to just smash it all down and start over again. Well, there were some Serbian generals who wanted regime change in Serbia as well, in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And they called themselves the Black Hand. They found these anarchists, and the anarchists, they wound them up, and they handed them grenades and pistols. And they told them which way the Archduke Ferdinand was going to be um, coming into town. The Archduke Ferdinand was about ready to take over as emperor of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. He had had his portrait painted already in the medals that only the emperor could wear. He was that close because the emperor was very, very ill. So he'd had his portrait painted already. He was in his motorcade. I'm not going to tell you the whole entire story because we'd be here for hours and hours. But what happened was that the driver took a wrong turn. And Princip was there. Um, It's almost too much of a coincidence to believe in, but, uh, you know, conspiracy theories only take you so far. So for whatever reason, the driver took a wrong turn, and Princip was right there with his pistol. He was walking away, discouraged. He hadn't been able to get close to uh, Franz Joseph and, and his wife, Sophie. And finally, there they were, and he... He shot, he shot into the, to the carriage, and he hit them both. And Sophie um, leaned down and, and said, what is, what, is, what is happening? What is this? And um, she didn't realize she was also hit, and he had been hit in the neck, and so he was bleeding very heavily, and he pleaded with her. He saw she was shot, too. He said, Sophie, stay alive. Stay alive for the children. But she wasn't able to do that. He loved her so much. He was, he was known to, he, he wrote, by far the cleverest thing I ever did in my life was to marry my Sophie. His family was very against the marriage. They didn't attend the wedding. 
She's everything for me, my wife, my doctor, my advisor, in a word, my whole happiness. When that happened, um, the emperor of the empire, of course, felt that the Serbs should be punished. And Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany wanted to help the emperor punish the Serbs. He was itching for war, and his big generals were itching for war, and they felt that war was a very manly thing. And if you could just go strike the Serbs and, you know, uh, give them a good trouncing and then get out, that that would be a glorious um, matter. And then they started to realize that Russia was an ally of the Serbs, and that if they started trouncing the Serbs, that Russia was going to come in. And that another ally was France, and another ally was Great Britain, and suddenly they were going to be at war with everybody because alliances had been made and must be satisfied. But honor also must be satisfied. The Serbs must be punished, and honor must be satisfied, and surely one's honor gives you the right to defend your honor. Also, they didn't want to look weak. If you tell a ruler that if he doesn't go to war, he's going to look weak, that's pretty much a surefire way to get them to go to war, apparently. It's like teenagers going, what are you, chicken? No, I'm not chicken. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Diplomacy is for sissies. It's talking. Talk, talk, talk. We need some guns. Yeah. Then we'll be impressive. They became alarmed, Willie and Nikki became alarmed and began to send each other telegrams saying, uh, I'm paraphrasing, like, dude, this could be really bad, so just I'm going to try not to let my armies do too much. How about you? Try not to let your armies do too much, and we'll kind of walk this thing down a little bit. But the generals wouldn't let them do it, and nobody in leadership had the will to say to the generals, Hey, I have a new puppy. Can you tell? So the generals just rolled right on into war to defend their honor. There was one voice, a man named Jean Jaurès, who was a beloved leader in France, and he was an anti-war, passionate speaker and sensible and happy, a happy guy. And people would listen to him. He had quarter of a million people out in the street protesting against going to war. The people, some of them didn't want to go to war. They, they came out in the street and said, no, let's, let's do that sissy talking thing. He, um, he said, what will the future be like when the billions now thrown away in preparation for war are spent on useful things to increase the well-being of people, on the construction of decent houses for the workers, on improving transportation, on reclaiming the land, The fever of imperialism has become a sickness. It is the disease of a badly run society which does not know how to use its energies at home. People were listening to him. And then somebody shot him. 
and then they went to war. Nobody could fathom the gruesome brutality of this war. Nobody could even imagine what it was like, what it was going to be like. The Irish boys and the Russian boys all thought, we are so brave and dashing. Surely our bravery and our dashing style will take us through to the end. And apparently their commanders felt that way too because many of the Russian boys went to war without rifles. All of the boys went to war without helmets. They had leather helmets with cloth over the leather to protect it from mud splatter. So for two years, there were lots of head injuries because what they did was they all dug trenches. They had trench warfare. This uh, image on the front of your bulletin is carved into one of the trenches. It's recently um, become a photographic exposition, um, photographs of the carvings in the trenches. They dug down so that they would be safe. And yet, when you dig in, you can't move. And the only way to take more um, land is to send a bunch of your guys up over the top and into the other guy's trench. And so most of them get slaughtered. Once you dig in, it's a stalemate. You can't, you, there's almost no way to, to end the thing. And they invented terrible things to lob into each other's trenches. They had bombs and they had flamethrowers and they had poison gas. And so, you know, when you, when you hear the songs, they're so heartbreaking. And, and, um, and they say, let's keep the home fires burning till the boys come home. But in Great Britain, uh, one out of two boys came home like they were uh, before they left. And half the boys didn't come home or came home maimed. They couldn't uh, see because of the gas. They couldn't breathe well because of the gas. Or they had lost arms or legs or eyes or faces. And the gruesomeness of the wounds were beyond what anybody could have imagined. The World War I poet Wilfred Owen who lived through the whole war and then was killed in the last week of it, wrote this anthem for doomed youth. Um, All you need to know for this poem is that orisons means prayers. What passing bells for these who die as cattle, only the monstrous anger of the guns, only the stuttering rifles' rapid rattle can patter out their hasty orisons. No mockeries now for them, no prayers or bells, nor any voice of mourning save the choirs, the shrill, demented choirs of wailing shells and bugles calling for them from sad shires. What candles may be held to speed them all? Not in the hands of boys, but in their eyes shall shine the holy glimmers of goodbyes. The pallor of girls' brows shall be their pall, their flowers the tenderness of patient minds, and each slow dusk, a drawing down of blinds. Nine million people died. For some of the guys and some of the civilians, it was the best time of their lives. They had companionship, they had a purpose, 
They were bonded. For others, it was a shattering time. Afterwards, people grieved their loved ones. The rise of spiritualism happened then. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle stopped writing Sherlock Holmes and started writing about going to mediums and talking to his dead son in seances. People wondered why, why, what was it for, what is the meaning? Nine million died, was good for the economy. Kathy Kolowitz, an artist, said, it is almost incomprehensible to me what degrees of endurance people can manifest. In days to come, people will hardly understand this age. What a difference between now and 1914. People have been transformed, so they have this capacity for endurance. Worst of all is that every war already carries within the war which will answer it. Every war is answered by a new war until everything, everything is smashed. Woodrow Wilson tried to make meaning of it by making the League of Nations. He worked so hard for it that he had a stroke and he was sick and his wife was pretty much running the country. But he still tried to work. And he said to the soldiers in a beautiful speech, he said, I stand for the covenant of the League of Nations absolutely. If it should ever, in any important respect, be impaired, I would feel like asking the Secretary of War to get the boys who went across the water to fight, and I would stand up before them and say, Boys, I told you before you went across the seas that this was a war against wars, and I did my best to fulfill the promise, but I'm obliged to come to you in mortification and shame and say I have not been able to fulfill the promise. You are betrayed. You have fought for something you did not get. I am not a pacifist. If somebody was coming after my babies, I would fight. I do not know the answer to whether we should have war or not. I can't pretend to understand, but I have a discussion in my own mind about it. I think... People are committing atrocities. Can you allow that to happen? Can you know that that's happening and, and allow it? Can you allow somebody to, to do the kinds of things that ISIS is doing? Can you just say, well, that's them. That's their culture. They're going to have to work it out. Can you stand by with the genocide in Rwanda? Can you stand by with the genocide in Bosnia where there was trouble in the Balkans again during the Clinton years? What do you do? What do you do? St. Augustine said, well, you go to war, but reluctantly. Okay, thanks. Going to war reluctantly. Um, If you're too reluctant on the battlefield, you're probably going to die. Should you keep war horrible so that we want to avoid it, or should you make it like a video game, like like the first Iraq war, where you just kind of um, send your tanks and blow things up and then go home? Should you have only drone warfare where your drones just attack each other? Um, Right now, we have drones, but other people don't. That's temporary. What do you do? What do you do? I, I think about... I think about the men and women in the service, and I don't 
know what to hope for. I wish, I wish we didn't feel that honor had to be satisfied. I wish we could be more pragmatic. I wish we could think about the honor of nations and not the honor of individuals. But I want us to remember, a hundred years later, we need to remember. Here's a poem by another war poet, Siegfried Sassoon. Does it matter? Does it matter losing your legs? For people will always be kind. And you need not show that you mind when others come in after hunting to gobble their muffins and eggs. Does it matter losing your sight? There's such splendid work for the blind, and people will always be kind. As you sit on the terrace, remembering and turning your face to the light, do they matter, those dreams in the pit? You can drink and forget and be glad, and people won't say that you're mad, for they know that you fought for your country. And no one will worry a bit. Please let us say together the words by which we extinguish our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. The lone wild bird in lofty flight is still with thee, nor leaves thy sight, and I am thine, I rest in thee. Great Spirit, come and rest in me. Go in peace. This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www.austinuu.org.